Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes and to discover other great shows, check out cageclub.me. In the book Theology and the Films of Terence Malick, a 2016 collection of essays edited by Christopher Barnett and Clark Elliston, professors of religious studies at Villanova and Schreiner University, respectively, Elliston introduces his essay on Malick's 2005 film, The New World, with the following, quote, Terence Malick divides viewers like few other filmmakers can. Frequent voiceovers, muted dialogue, extended takes of nature, and abstract themes all contribute to the divisiveness of his films. The viewer who dislikes these aspects of Malick's work will detest the new world. It possesses neither the relatively fast pace of the thin red line, nor the explicit metaphysical motivation of the tree of life. For those interested in historical depictions, Malick remains typically muted on his emphasis. He does not right the wrongs within history. How, then, does one approach a Malickian historical film like The New World, where the subject seems to be neither metaphysics nor history? Initially, the response might be romance. After all, the Pocahontas John Smith narrative has entertained readers for generations. However, Malick has as little interest in this interpretation, as he does in one of historical accuracy. A provisional answer lies in the figure of Pocahontas herself, as she guides the film from beginning to end. Her voiceover animates the narrative, and her death concludes it. So how does the viewer encounter the figure of Pocahontas? Is she, in Malick's hands, the ingenue in a revisionist tale of love? Or is she a symbol presaging the acquisitive and the destructive inclinations of the colonial West? Although few would deny Pocahontas' centrality to Malick's narrative in the New World, interpreting her within that narrative proves more challenging. Malick undermines classical narratives depicting her life with John Smith as the consummate romance. In fact, the film dwells very little on their relationship as such. Yet neither does it entirely subvert the wonder of the Western world. Pocahontas's visit to England evokes the same wonder in her as Virginia does in the English colonists. Hers is therefore not the story of an idealized natural society spoiled by its encounter with the insidious West. Pocahontas attends to the world around her, and the people in that world. Her search for the divine other in those relationships opens her not to a new geographical world, but a spiritual one. Moreover, her seeking does not remove her from this world, but frames her existence within the world. This existence invites both love and suffering. Despite her suffering, she is not destroyed. By the end of the film, her relationship with the transcendent other has reconciled the rift born within her as the mediator between worlds. As such, she becomes a Christological figure. She bears the weight of colliding worlds rather than a cross. Pocahontas's embrace of her existence in between worlds culminates in reconciliation with the ground of all worlds, the divine other. Her redemption manifests itself in the renewed sense of spiritual vision, such that Malik has her say upon her death, Now, mother, I know where you live. End quote. In his fictionalized and highly personal take on the early days of the Jamestown colony, Terence Malick explores the most confounding elements of the human condition, one that's central to the myth of Adam and Eve, Pandora, and Voltaire's 18th century satire Candide, our sense that the world we have inherited is not the world as it has to be that there's more, and that we can and that we must chase Eden, a better world, a new world, regardless of how destructive and fruitless that chase may be. My guest today is Matthew Williams. Matt teaches American history at the Dalton School in New York City. He earned a PhD in American history at SUNY Binghamton, where his focus was on early America, and that makes him the perfect person to talk to today about Terrence Malick's The New World. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe.
getting a, a PhD, Matt, in um, anything is <laughs> hard. <laughs> um, so two questions. First of all, how are you doing? And second of all, um, why do you have a PhD in American history? Um, you know, just like everyone here and elsewhere, um, you know, I live in Manhattan with my wife. We're just hanging in there. Um, I think I'm getting accustomed to the stay-at-home sort of thing. Um, get out maybe once or twice a week. But yeah, I mean, obviously definitely looking forward to the end of this, but we have to wait on that. Um, and yeah, it's it's a bit of a roundabout way towards getting my PhD. I worked in book publishing for 10 years, um, happily and then not so happily. And during that time, um, developed an interest on my own, just reading American history. And my wife, uh, who was my girlfriend at the time, prompted me into maybe pursuing that at graduate school. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to get a, you know, fellowship and uh, acceptance to Binghamton University slash SUNY Binghamton. And yeah, six and a half years later, at the ripe old age of 42 or 43, um, you know, I had my PhD and now I'm a, you know, I teach at the Dalton School and, um, you know, did a lot of work in this kind of field in Virginia because my advisor was a Virginian. So, um yeah, it's it's it was an unexpected career path, but I, I really enjoy and love what I'm doing now. So especially Virginia based early American history is something that you um, know quite a bit about. Yeah, I feel pretty good about it. Um, you know, my <laughs> specialty was I wrote my dissertation on New York City in the 18th century. But, um, you know, when your advisor does anything, you by <laughs> definition, do it, too. Um, so, you know, a lot of reading on tobacco culture in the 16th century <laughs> I mean, I, I remember a lot about that, actually. And, um, you know, he assigned books to his undergraduates that I read being his one of his teaching assistants. So, yeah, it all kind of sunk in there, which may have a little to do with why I love this movie so much. Yeah, I, I do remember my eighth grade history teacher who has was, was really into I, I grew up in a place um, that was heavily connected to the King Philip War. Um mm. So like our, our, uh, our local park was called Metacomet Park. And so there, you know, okay. um, yeah, so, <laughs> so I had a, my English, my history teacher in eighth grade was a, um, a local historian. And, um, uh, I remember him saying something along the lines of, you know, if not for tobacco, everybody would have packed up and gone home and we wouldn't have an America. Yeah. I mean, the Spanish probably would have just proceeded up from Florida at the time. And, um, you know, it would be a far different sort of uh, state of affairs, but thankfully, you know, the Brits and uh, the Europeans got addicted to sugar and they got addicted to tobacco. And all it took was the most <laughs> awful, vile regime of human bondage the world's ever known. Um, yeah, so uh, funny how that works. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the new world, which we're going to talk about more. I'm going to we're going to do a little bit about Terrence Malick himself and his and his films. Tell me about your relationship to this movie. I we uh, were were talking on Facebook, which is when we both discovered that we're really big fans of this movie. Well, I definitely saw it when it first came out in theaters, and you know before that had seen uh, the Thin Red Line, and when that came out in 1998, and I remember all the the hype in the entertainment industry about Malick coming back to the screen. Um, you know, and, and didn't know much about him before 1998. And then when The New World came out, um, you know, I definitely had to go see it. And it just kind of just struck this immense chord with me, not just because of the subject matter, but um, 
the whole idea of the way a, f a film could be done that way, um, in which the natural world takes on a character of its own. And there's, cert there's a certain poetry to the proceedings, the romantic story, I would say, with their actual realism about um, life during the 1607 to 1609 or so um, period of time, you know, was just kind of, um, I didn't really know you could tell a story that way by evoking feelings within characters and then within um, the viewer to that sort of profound degree um, without relying on tons of dialogue uh, necessarily or dramatic plot shifts. So it was kind of a revolution, a revelation to me, not really being, I would say, you know, a film scholar by any means. Um, so it, it just kind of, um, if you're, I think if you're a reflective, thoughtful lover of film of whatever stripe that might be, um, you know, you, you can find something in this movie to satisfy you. <laughs> Let's dig a little mm -hmm. bit into, um, Malik himself, um, who he is. Uh, I don't think he's the most famous film director out there. I'm sure some people who are ab above average film buffs uh, know who Terrence Malick is and, and are familiar with uh, some, if not all, of his work. Uh, but he has a, a very kind of unique story as a filmmaker. A lot of filmmakers get a lot of pushback and, and, and flack for um, being kind of overly philosophical or sort of musing on theology. But Malik actually has the, the background to, to kind of back it up. So Malik was born uh, Thomas Frederick Malik, uh, which is uh, just too much of a mouthful. We'll call, we'll call him Terry. Yeah. Uh, I think his friends call him Terry. I think we're, yeah, we can do that, I think. Yeah, we're good. Uh, he's born in Ottawa, Illinois in 1943. I didn't know there was an Ottawa, Illinois. I had no idea. Raised in Oklahoma and Texas, which explains why there tends to be a lot of Oklahoma and Texas in the, some of his movies. <laughs> he attended Harvard University, uh, graduating with a degree in philosophy uh, in 1965. So at the age of 22... Terrence Malick is a guy who um, went from Illinois to Texas to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh, walked out of Harvard University with a philosophy degree. So certainly not so far uh, a person that you would think, oh yeah, he's going to direct a bunch of critically acclaimed uh, Academy Award winning slash nominated movies. Uh, but he's the real deal. So he, he actually has, has the background in philosophy uh, to, to back up his philosophical musings. Uh, after Harvard, he went to study at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, uh, but he dropped out uh, to work as a freelance journalist and then went on to serve as a philosophy professor at MIT. So back to Cambridge, back to all the smart kids, and, and back to the philosophy. So, you know, in his mid-20s, uh, Malik has just been a philosophy professor. That seems to be his game, right? <laughs> like, I think by then, if, if I was, I mean, I you know, you talked about having been a, in, in, in book publishing for a while and then dropping out and going back to school and then being a high school teacher. But I feel like <laughs> if I was teaching at MIT by my mid-20s, like, yeah, that's my, that's my career. And for a lot of people, it would have been. I mean, that would have been, you know, a dream career path. You know, um, especially yeah. then and now. I, just, I, mean, I was just, on. you know, I was in transition, just teaching <laughs> philosophy at MIT. And... Yeah, I just found myself. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so this tells us quite a bit about um, Malik and his ambitions. <laughs> just sort of um, how how high how high this guy shoots. So Malik is 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 chiefly interested in the philosophy of phenomenology. Matt, do you know what phenomenology is? You know, I'm not even going to try to pretend I've. <laughs> Definitely heard the word before, but I could not define it for you. Okay, so phenomenology is uh, a philosophy, a school of philosophy that that um, 
arose out of the early 20th century uh, in, uh, not surprisingly, Germany, uh, which is where a lot of 20th century philosophy um, and 19th century philosophy came from. So it's 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 father as uh, a guy named Edmund Husserl, who unfortunately uh, found himself in the midst of the rise of the Nazi party and was also Jewish. So his his career was essentially ended uh, by by the rise of Nazi Germany um, in his older age, I, I should say. But uh, so he gave rise to this this intellectual school that was uh, in, includes people like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and, and, and Martin Heidegger who actually took over from, from Husserl uh, at, at the University of Freiburg as the chair of the philosophy department there. Um, and the reason that Heidegger took over is because Husserl was essentially kicked out by the Nazi party uh, and, that, and that Heidegger took over. Heidegger himself was a, uh, a member of the Nazi party, um, <laughs> a fairly proud member of the Nazi party. Um, and, and, and Heidegger is a, is a favorite of Malick's. Uh, so, so this is a, an interesting element of, of Terence Malick, his association with this, um, I mean, really revered the giant of 20th century philosophy in Heidegger, but he was a real acolyte of, of Heidegger's. Um, and in fact, in 1969, uh, published a translation of Heidegger's The Essence of Reasons, which is very well received. So... Phenomenology itself is the idea, essentially, that rather than focusing on the kind of causes of um, events is to focus on the uh, experience of events, um, the, the phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's, it's, it's a lot like existentialism, except it is, is really rooted in the idea of the individual experience of um, consciousness, right? And so... Again, it's it's kind of highfalutin, right? But you can see how that plays out in a lot of the narratives that um, Malik puts forth in his films. That he is very much interested in the internal mind of his characters, right? And so that translates uh, into his work as a filmmaker. So it's kind of like the experience of living, you know, individual by individual, and and characterizing that dynamic and how it might be similar or different among people. Is that kind of one of the ideas? Yeah, I think so. I, I, you know, I'm not, I haven't read a lot of Heidegger. I think I, so I, I was a philosophy and religion major in college, so I did read some and I don't remember loving it. He, he really is sort of the guy, I think, who's most associated with phenomenology. And, and uh, uh, the idea basically, yes, is that, you know, existentialism is the philosophy that life's meaning is determined by the ex- experiencer, mm-hmm. right? That there's no prescribed meaning to life, that it's something that you, um, you, you make through existence. Phenomenology is that there's no objective necessarily reality um, outside of the person experiencing that reality. And so the, the whole kind of instance of, of someone experiencing something, even if it's a, a big historical thing or, or a minor everyday thing um, is really different person to person and determined by the um, whatever the person brings into that right. experience, yeah. right? And so, so, so it's that element that I think helps to kind of unlock some of what Malick does in his movies and also why some people hate them. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, it's that kind of deep dive into the main character's state of mind that, you know, characterizes a lot of the work, which, you know, I'm sure that's something we'll get to in a second, but 
kind of what it's all about. So, so, so with that in mind, all right. So, for reasons that nobody can quite understand, uh, so, somehow along the lines here, so he's he's teaching at MIT. He he writes this translation of Heidegger. Uh, he he is he is on the verge of becoming you know a major name probably in the in, in the in the philosophy world, and is like, oh, I'll, I'll go but go to film school. Um, as you do, yeah. So again, yeah, well, very similar to your experience as well, except you weren't teaching at MIT, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. translating Heidegger before that. Um, so yeah, so 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 Malik goes to film school for for again reasons that cannot be determined. <laughs> he goes to the AFI Conservatory, graduates from the MFA in 1971, and and this is at a time when film uh, is kind of going through a transitional phase from the kind of old Hollywood studio system and your you know your clark gables and right where you have like these actors with contracts with um mm. studios and they're and they're really what's driving the whole industry to artists coming in uh and putting their own like directors putting their own uh influence onto these movies and reshaping what a movie can be and, and you know we see in the 70s like the the, the renegade filmmakers the um, you know, Brian De Palma's and Francis Ford Coppola and Steven Spielberg right towards the end of that era. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I would imagine there's that's got something to do with it that he was seeing in the film industry as sort of changing in, in changing of the guard, so to speak, and, and that maybe he saw a an interesting way to explore his own philosophical ideas Um through film but i can only that's purely conjecture i have no idea what, what drove malik <laughs> that was kind of like the age of the auteur right in american cinema where it was like you were saying about the individuals the artist's vision of what they wanted to create as opposed to like the studio system okay you're going to do you know an action picture now and you're going to we're going to cast you, you know, for the next six years and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and, and the new wave movement had been happening like in Jean-Luc Godard and like there. So, so yeah, it, it certainly in this era, like 1971 is, is right smack in the middle of this period where um, clearly like what you can do with film and what you can make um, and how you can go about making it uh, is changing. And, you know, this is a completely different subject, but the, there's, there's a fascinating story to be told that, <laughs> as to how film got to be where it was uh, having to do with uh, Thomas Edison and his um, uh, insistence on, on copywriting and, and uh, getting patents for absolutely everything. The, the Hollywood film system <laughs> emerged out of people trying to get away from Edison and trying to get away from his lawsuits. <laughs> <laughs> and so this kind of thing got built around that and then uh it, it gradually got dismantled and and uh, malik seems to be sort of in the middle of that dismantling so 1973 uh is is the release of his first film badlands uh starring martin sheen and sissy spacek both uh real staples of the kind of um era of film that we're talking about and it's in this movie that we start to see the sort of prototype the uh the ingredients that go into um malik movies so we've got a lot of sweeping sort of natural cinematography, uh, a lot of natural light. He loves to shoot his movies at certain times of the day <laughs> um, so they can get exactly the right light. Uh, you've got these these two kind of renegade 
people on the run from the law, right, going through a kind of existential crisis. And then you also have the thing that makes him a true renegade uh, in that he commits the, the, the cardinal sin um, of filmmaking, um, his use of the voiceover, which he mm. absolutely loves. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about, let's talk about voiceovers for a second, right? Um, now, you know that Malik uses voiceovers, uh, that all of his movies, I think, essentially include quite a bit of voiceover. Um, voiceover has a real negative uh, <laughs> association because it is typically used as a kind of lazy crutch, right? So you can't tell the story with narrative and visually you have to resort to busting into the person's head and, and pushing the story along that way. Right. Uh, right. Most of the time, that's how voiceover is used, right? A lot of the times it's used in sort of CBS drama TV shows or something like that um, where, you know, the main character is sort of filling you in on what happened because you don't have time to tell the whole story. So you just got to like lay it all out through narration and voiceover. Um, and that's not how Malik uses voiceovers. I mean, I can see, you know, how some people might, it might put people off. They might think it's too much. I mean, for example, when you watch the thin red line, there really is an awful lot of voiceover there and it's very, rhapsodic it's very questioning of god it's like you're reading augustine's confessions or something um you know asking about the nature of god and why do you do what you do um you know but you know for me i think um you know i like hearing the internal monologue of people because i think we all think we don't always say what we think but we wonder and we question and um you know, in the context of this incredible natural world that he creates, especially in the new world, but also Tree of Life and other films, um, it seems like an appropriate kind of response to a world that does not totally make sense to you. And I think you see that in a lot of his films. Um, so for me, with Malick's films, yeah, it works great. I mean, you know, when I watch Bad Boys 3, I don't need any, <laughs> you know, I don't need any voiceover. Um, and today it's kind of used as a joke, you know, you know, think of Arrested Development, how brilliantly they did voiceover um, to make these cutting comments about each other. But, you know, for for Malik, I think, you know, it's it's just a it's just a tool in his toolbox and you can use it well or use it poorly. And, you know, for me, I think it's it's always most often really, really effectively done. Yeah, it reminds me of the way that people justify having nudity or sex scenes in their movie because it's like oh it's important for the story and it's well actually in this case it is right like you mm -hmm. like malik can't actually tell the stories he wants to tell in the way that he wants to tell them without the voiceovers um and the voiceovers always that they don't they're not just serving the purpose of driving the story along they 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 get us into the minds of the people that are experiencing these things mm -hmm. um so yeah i i mean i think you can you can argue that he found the exception to the rule um of when voiceovers can be used and i think with as with any technique um you know the run-on sentence like faulkner used to write sentences that would last a page right and like as long as you do it right <laughs> as long as yeah. you have the right punctuation in there and it makes sense then then i don't think any rule should be ironclad that you can you can violate rules all you want yeah i mean they you know it's a good analogy to writing because i think it seems like at heart malik's a writer he's a thinker um, and, you know, like a lot of these rules you learn when you're like in grade school, 
don't do run on sentences, don't end sentences with prepositions. Um, you know, they're good for when you're in school and a kid, but like when you're, you know, an adult, you should be able to break the rules um, and not feel like you have to be, you know, following the strictures of the elements of style or something when you're trying to, you know, say something. So, um, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, and I think that's a really good, to, to call him a writer, you know, when you, when you say that, I initially kind of resist it because I'm like, well, is he a writer because his, is his writing great? And then I think, well, you know, I separate out writing from storytelling, and I don't think Malik is, is a great storyteller because I don't think he's actually a storyteller at all. And then I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, so so I think what he likes to do is is find stories and explore them rather than tell them. So if you look at something like The Thin Red Line, it's an adaptation of a book and if and you know you look at something like um uh the tree of life and and there's a lot of um autobiography in that and you look at something like in the new world and it's and it's he's taking history and he's uh exploring it his own way right so like his, his films are such wholesale pieces of art that it's really hard to pick one element that he's really good at the most right that that because of all the component pieces working so well together um you know, it's different for someone like, I don't know, like Quentin Tarantino, like he's very clearly a writer. Like he loves writing and he loves his dialogue. And I'm not, I, I, I can't say I, I love him or whatever, but like, it's very clear that he kind of, he kind of lives and dies by his writing. Right. And I don't kind of feel that way about Malik. That's true. Yeah. I should probably modify that to say like his origins as a writer, as a scholar, I suppose, you know, in some way must inform what he does visually. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've read things um, in preparation for, you know, our talk today where, you know, actors will say they do get a script, but when they're shooting, they ignore the script. He just advises actors to use the writing as inspiration and take things where they may go. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah, he's definitely not the Tarantino kind of writer. But, you know, I feel like, you know, there's some kind of basis that informs what he does. Obviously, it can't all just be happenstance. But again, that's like like you were saying, this is a matter of conjecture and things I've pieced together from various places. I could be 100% wrong, but, um, you know, getting back to the voiceover, I feel that the characters are guiding you through the story. And even getting back to your point about phenomenology, you know, experiencing things as they happen through his films can be similar to what I think we feel like how we go through life at times. Um, you know, unsure of ourselves and not knowing where we're going, really. Yeah, let's get back to his life. Uh, so 1978 is when his second movie, Days of Heaven, is released. And Days of Heaven is probably a bigger, higher profile movie than Badlands. So it's a, it stars Richard Gere. It's one of Richard Gere's earlier movies. Uh, it, it is considered one of part of Richard Gere's greatest work. And I should say that I think Richard Gere is, is one of the greatest actors alive. Hmm. But he's one of those actors that also loves to just pick his own stuff and do his own thing and doesn't really love being a movie star. Which is interesting because it sort of that sounds like Malik, right? <laughs> this of Heaven comes out. It's it's really well received. It's a big sweeping epic movie. It's again a lot of the a lot of the Malik tropes are in it. It's uh, turn of the century Texas. A lot of natural light. And in fact, it was the natural light thing that seems to have been um, what caused a great deal of tension um, on the set. A lot of people quit this movie. A lot of people were really turned off uh, to Malik and like refused to ever work with him again. And I can kind of understand why. So he 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 shot almost all of the movie either at sunrise or sunset. So he used <laughs> incredibly small windows, right, to, to film most of this movie because he really liked the, um, the natural effect of the lighting. 
uh, in those times. And that is not like when you're making a movie, that's not ideal for a, uh, a crew. I can understand why, why the crew would get a little, uh, annoyed. I, I, bet it was, I mean, I'm sure it was great for Richard Gere who just got to like hang out all day in his trailer and just wait till, you know, wait till 6 PM to go out and film for 20 minutes and then go home. But you know, it was a big epic movie. Malik notoriously likes to shoot a lot of film and, and, um, this this guy this this movie seemed to have taken a very long time to make he edited it for two years so oh wow i had no idea so yeah uh anyway came out in 78 i I, i'm not sure when they started filming but he wrapped up badlands in 73 so you can kind of guess uh yeah and then he quit film for a long time and disappeared entirely for 20 years and uh nobody's quite sure why <laughs> maybe he also quit malik <laughs> yeah. uh he moves to paris uh he, he he starts writing this screenplay for a movie called q which never saw the light of day but it was a movie that explored the origins of life uh and q itself would eventually kind of split off into two different movies the tree of life is one of them and the voyage of time which is this documentary about the space-time continuum and <laughs> all of all of the earth and the universe uh <laughs> that was released a couple of years after the tree of life yeah it's it's kind of an, an amazing you know span of time to step away from you know a film that would already have seen seem to have achieved in his young career probably so many of the the goals he had as a you know visual storyteller and um yeah i mean it's it's fun to speculate i think there was some rumor during that time that he was doing script doctoring right you know, punching and polishing up, um, you know, prominent, I guess, scripts um, for handsome fees, as I understand that world can sometimes offer. I mean, I want to think that, you know, he may have done commercial films too, um, you know, Weekends at Bernie or whatever, under <laughs> nom de plums, but like, yeah, I'm sure it was for like big ticket kind of things. Um, who knows though, you know. One, one day we'll finally get the Blu-ray uh, <laughs> yeah. Weekend at Bernie's uh, <laughs> Parents Malik cut that we that we so we so deserve to see. Uh, yeah, and if someone who's listening happens to know, please uh, be in touch with John. I so. would love to know what <laughs> Terrence Malick uh, worked on in that time. Yeah, I, 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 I doubt it's anything quite as interesting as, as Weekend at Bernie's. He's probably working on, um, you know, art films for French filmmakers or something but yeah exactly yeah, yeah. who knows I, <laughs> but i i think a lot of his time really was spent writing writing this this epic screenplay that never saw the light of day anyway he, he comes back in 1998 and releases the thin red line so this was a a much heralded return like this is a hollywood loves this kind of a story right when they like get one of theirs back and and especially one who had this sort of promises an auteur right and who goes missing and it's like it's yeah. like getting jd salinger to write a sequel to catcher in the rye kind of thing right <laughs> like, like you finally found him and pinned him down and it's yeah. like all right keep keep making novels <laughs> and it's funny because malik is is given that kind of celebrity label as being a recluse and anybody who knows him it's that seems to n not be the case at all like he's very gregarious he's very outgoing he hangs out with people all the time huh. he just refuses to do the sort of like press junket thing right yeah he, he won't go on like conan and and, and that makes him a <laughs> that makes him a recluse in the eyes of in the eyes of hollywood which i think is is pretty fascinating but like anybody who 
I guess can can develop that kind of a an arsenal of of great work, right? <laughs> I think you get a pass if 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 you can, you know, always produce something interesting. Yeah, when you you look at the cast of the Thin Red Line as well. I mean, when you right. you know, it's it's unbelievable. It's like a murderer's row of the 1990s and you know, <laughs> um you know, so I think if you can get people like that to come to you, the studios are going to, you know, if you don't want to sit for for E or whatever and, you know, have, you know, do the press junket kind of thing. They're, yeah, they're probably fine with it, right? Yeah, it, it, it's people who've been in Malick movies are almost like uh, people who've been in like the MCU, I, it, right? It's like literally <laughs> everybody has been in it because they, they are they really want to be a part of this thing and you know the thin red line i i remember that even before the movie was released when they were doing and this may have been actually the cut that was released to festivals and that sort of thing but the the theatrical cut that was finally released to theaters um had to cut a bunch of high named like very high profile actors from from the cast um, one of them was gary oldman who i you know i don't i'm sure he only had maybe like five minutes like if you remember the movie, John Travolta's in it, but he's in it in one scene and it's like five minutes long, right? I'm pretty sure Oldman had a role like that, but he was cut. And if you're just cutting Gary Oldman from your movie, right, because you can't fit the Gary Oldman scene in there, that, that tells you <laughs> what you need to know about the uh, the scope and the cast of yeah. of this movie. And in fact, the, the, the cast members that are that anchor the movie really are not hugely well-known or you know I, I think they're more well-known now but at the time they were not necessarily massive anchoring stars so you have this whole massive cast of nick nolte and and woody harrelson and, and that sort of thing but it's anchored by by people like jim caviezel adrian brody uh ben chaplin right like these are the guys who um are are the stars of the thing yeah. so yeah that that also is kind of seems to be a, a, an avenue that malik likes to take he he knows exactly how he wants to use his actors and and he doesn't just like stunt cast hmm. which is uh, sort of an interesting approach anyway so thin, thin red line was the was the other world war ii movie of that year um and uh was a little bit drowned out by another world war ii movie called saving private ryan um which you <laughs> might have heard of uh, also a movie with like an enormous cast, but these are very, very different movies. Yeah, completely different. Yeah, they're just, yeah, they're war movies only in name uh, in terms of what they share, right? Right, so. right. Um, yeah, it, yeah, Saving Private Ryan really is about the the, the, the experience and the hell of, of war. Uh, it's very visceral. It's very um, kind of immediate. And it uses the the, the terror, right? The, the The sound and the visual sort of, overwhelming element of the experience of the characters um, i think in that way there's there's something almost malachian about it mm. that it really does try and get you to feel the the experience of the characters but the thin red line uses world war ii as a way to deal with existential angst <laughs> right like whereas saving private ryan is a movie that tries to get people to have some sort of feeling of of what it is to be in a war like mm -hmm. that so they, they have very different motivations right 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 and also a thin red line takes place in the eastern or the eastern theater which is not where not where you typically see world war ii movies um so regardless malik is is lauded for coming back and and this movie um makes a bunch of you know best of lists uh he so he gets nominated for best picture best director wins none of those things um do you remember what won uh best picture that year oh that year um 
Oh, was that the? Oh, that was the really bad year where. Oh, that was Shakespeare in Love, right? Oh, geez. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good lord. <laughs> the story of like why Shakespeare in Love won Best Picture that year and uh, what was going on in terms of and this is all about Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that Weinstein had sort of figured out a way to hack the uh, Academy voting um, by doing the equivalent of essentially like flooding the airwaves, <laughs> right, with political ads and it, like he. That Miramax just absolutely um, bombarded people with with why you need to make this the best. It's weird that that would even work, but Weinstein figured out a way to to get Shakespeare in Love to win Best Picture at a year mm-hmm. when The Thin Red Line and Saving Private Ryan <laughs> came out. It's just jaw-dropping to think of that. Yeah, he really kind of redefined the Hollywood Oscar campaign with that you know i mean it just really changed the terms of what you were supposed to do and and you know it always been a competition for awards i'm sure and and you know print ads and whatever they do and sending out videos and stuff but yeah that was just like wall-to-wall kind of coverage um yeah and it's i don't know it, it kind of broke the hollywood system in a way but i don't know that's i guess another matter but it, it does seem a shame you know i mean because you know who goes back to shakespeare and love these days You know, I mean, you go back to, you know, um, the Thin Red Line, you go back to Saving Private Ryan. I mean, I guess, you know, awards have a purpose, but, you know, rewarding artistic merit, and I'm going to sound like an asshole for saying this, um, you know, is not necessarily the purpose of them. So I I thoroughly enjoyed Shakespeare in Love when I saw it as a... (laughs) Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, totally. I have never had any inkling to watch it again, like after the first time. I've seen it once and I was like, great, cool, good. Yeah. Um, what fun. I've seen The Thin Red Line probably five times, right? And yeah. Saving Private Ryan, I've seen a couple times. That's a harder one to actually to actually get. Through. Yeah, it definitely. Definitely is. But The Thin Red Line, so this that's, an, that's another movie that sort of pushes forward what, what becomes the, the Malik recipe. So again, you have a lot of voiceovers, a lot of internal monologue, a lot of sort of musing on the experience of being a stranger in a strange place. Um, trying to find some sort of peace and meaning in amidst chaos and uh, a kind of an, an alien environment. And it's something that I think is really well ex- explored in that story, but um, there's something about that story that is bigger than those ideas, uh, if that makes any sense at all, that I don't think it's viewed, I think you and I agree on this, that it's not viewed as, as I, I, I think you and I both think the new world is, is the best of the Malick movies, um, mm-hmm. which is which is kind of the thesis of what we're going to be talking about here. But, you know, it's an adaptation of a, of a, of a book that was already made into a movie. Um, it is a very, very loose adaptation. Uh, it's an adaptation in the sense that if he had not credited the book, he would have been sued. But that's about it. <laughs> but it, it 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 shoots really, really high. And it, uh, and it's it's the story itself is separated over so many different characters that it's less it spends less time getting into the minds of the individual characters and more time getting into the existential meaning of the story. It has more in common with like Candide, right? Which I think is probably something that Malik has read a number of times. Mm-hmm. And the the idea of like finding Eden, right? Finding a, a perfect world or a, I don't know. How would you say it? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's definitely has the Edenic. Is that the right way to say it? Um, Edenic is a word. Yeah. Yeah. The Edenic <laughs> qualities, you know, that have appeared in, in other of his movies 
Um, A Hidden Life, which is his most recent film, also deals with, you know, similar kind of contexts in which a, you know, a pure location is violated by a kind of invasion um, of evil. Um, And in this case, I don't think it's so much evil in a new world, um, because I don't think the English explorer's intentions are presented as evil, and certainly not from an historical perspective were they meant to be evil. Um, But, you know, this this sort of conflict and something is lost or ruined that can't be regained again, not just in terms of what happens to the land and the people involved, the English versus the Powhatan native people, you know, but between the relationship between um, Pocahontas and Smith. So, yeah, there's, um, you know, the state of perfection, you know, can't last, I suppose. It's obviously one of the oldest stories in the Western canon, at least. Um, right, right, and I and I think that that's 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 a really great way of saying it. I think in the in the thin red line, um, what you have is the um, it, it uses war as a way of talking about the way that uh, mankind and nature are often at odds, but then also are one of one of the same, right? And I think that's also one of the underlying themes of of Malik. Yeah, um, it's a very strange way to use war uh but <laughs> and i think that's also one of the reasons why the thin red line a lot of people were like what right <laughs> like, this is a war movie uh why is everybody talking to themselves and swimming in the ocean, like yeah, hanging right. out with native people on a weird <laughs> island like what is this uh yeah so i you know the, the the anybody in any environment as soon as they enter into that environment in any other means aside from birth, right, mm-hmm. is is going to disrupt it and change it, and how you deal with that sort of disharmony and what that disharmony means, and if it can be reharmonized, right? I, I think that's sort of what's going on a lot in the Thin Red Line, and I think war is obviously a sort of exaggerated uh, version of that. Um, that I think is again much more sophisticated in the in in in, in a new world because it's so specific to the characters whether it's pocahontas and smith and then pocahontas and rolf and pocahontas uh in her native environment versus pocahontas in england right mm-hmm. that that you have it's it's the, the the pieces are are um easier to sort of navigate uh and 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 move around but we'll come back to that in a second let's let's just talk really quickly about a new world and, and what happens to Malik's career. So uh, a mere seven years go by uh, between <laughs> <laughs> the thin red line and the new world. I'm sure all of it spent actually making the movie or maybe editing the movie or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and my suspicion is that one of the reasons that Malik came back to film in 98 was, was a, a technology reason that, that a lot of the things that had been um, sort of a nuisance to him or, or a hindrance to him um we're no longer an issue, right? Like you, this is the sort of the dawn of digital filming and, and, and you can films a lot cheaper and you can, you can waste a lot more of it. Uh, <laughs> and at this point, like I didn't even need it anymore. And, and, and you can, you can edit things on a computer. And like, I'm sure a lot of that to Malik was like, Oh, cool. Making the movies I want to make now is going to be a lot easier. Right. Um, still hard, but easier mm-hmm. than it was in the 1970s. Um, purely conjecture on my part i have absolutely no idea if that's (laughs) why right but but it seems to me like oh yeah we live in an age now where the kind of movies that malik wants to make um are easier to make i don't don't think he's 
you know, using too many green screens or whatever, but. Yeah. And so much of what he does, you know, happens in the editing room. So, um, you know, for that to be facilitated more easily with technology, you know, probably would have may account for like his recent quicker output of movies, um, you know, which is certainly heartening for those of us who love his movies to see. Yeah. And it's weird because he, he will like, he'll do the thing where he goes seven years and then he'll just like it, make three in a row. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a very strange schedule. Um, he seems to be on, it's like the older he gets, the more urgent it is that he, um, that he makes movies. It reminds me of, um, of Ridley Scott in that way. Where <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Ridley Scott's like 500 years old and every, <laughs> every, every 20 minutes he's like, and then I'm going to make this epic. And I'm like, dude, dude, slow down. Uh, <laughs> like, you don't, you don't, you don't need to. Uh, so hidden life came out in 2019, two short films in 2018, song to song and something called notes of a woman, which is also a short film. Both of those in 2017, uh, voyage of time was 16 night of cups was 15 to the wonder was 12 tree of life was 11. So there's six years between the new world and tree of life. And then just a whole bunch of output, um, as this guy is, you know, approaching 80 years old. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, maybe he's, he's feeling some of that existential angst that he, <laughs> so much in his movies in his in his drive to make as many movies as possible but okay so new world comes out we'll get back to that in a second tree of life is probably his most commercially successful movie mm -hmm. part of the reason why it was so big was probably because it starred brad pitt and sean penn especially brad pitt who 2011 almost 10 years ago still one of the biggest most bankable stars in america and this is one of the first of his really kind of interesting I'm going to do my own thing and make art movies uh, transitions that he seems to have made in the last 10 years or so. Yeah, it's been heartening to see. I mean, um, you know, someone with, you know, his looks and charisma could have done, you know, Batman or something, you know, similar like that. Um, but he's had a hugely successful career, you know, taking some left turns when people probably would have expected him to just do the straight and narrow thing. So Yeah, and yeah, it's it's interesting because again, I think Brad Pitt is kind of like our modern Richard Gere uh in a lot of ways where there's definitely the kind of Hollywood pretty boy sex symbol whatever element of him, but mm -hmm. underneath like is an, is a is a real performer, actor, artist who really wants to do his own thing and wants to navigate his own path. I, I think we've seen we kind of got hints of that when Brad Pitt did um, 12 Monkeys in 1996, you know, that we saw like, oh, this isn't just a guy who is the pretty boy who's going to be the anchor of all of these kind of studio, right? Like blockbuster, mm -hmm. um, the movie that makes back the studio's budget for the year, right? Like, like Will Smith <laughs> yeah. was for a few, you know what I mean? Like that's. Yeah. He, he could have been, yeah. The guy who was paying the bills for everyone else. Right. right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, he, he worked with Malik. He worked with um, Fincher. Uh, he worked with, you know, Redford. So, yeah, I mean, credit credit to him for seeking out the good stuff. Fincher a couple times. Yeah. Because yeah, Fight Club and uh, and then Benjamin Button. The right. Head in the Box movie. Yeah, Benjamin Button. Yeah, and which seven, I love. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Seven. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. Uh, yeah. I love Benjamin Button just as a side note, man. I freaking love that movie. <laughs> oh, wow. Anyway, so Tree of Life uh, is, so there's a funny story about Tree of Life, actually. I got I got I, I, I found um, this thing, and I remember this being an issue 
Uh, I remember hearing about this on NPR uh, when this movie came out. So it's a Brad Pitt movie, right? And it's a Brad Pitt movie with Sean Penn in it, and it, it's advertised on television, and you see these scenes of, you know, this family in the 50s in Texas, and it looks like a normal movie, and then you go into the movie, and it's three hours long, and it starts with dinosaurs, and you're like, what, <laughs> what, what is going on? So, again, part of that sort of transition for Brad Pitt um, was was this movie that, a lot of people went to go see a Brad Pitt movie and then were like, why am I watching dinosaurs? And why is the universe <laughs> created? Like, so <laughs> one particular movie theater, uh, the Avon theater in Stanford, Connecticut had to put a disclaimer about the movie. <laughs> and, and this, this made the, the, the Twitter repost verse. And then also NPR. Um, and the, the disclaimer reads as follows, dear patrons, in response to some customer feedback and a polarized audience response from last weekend, we would like to take this opportunity to remind patrons that The Tree of Life is a uniquely visionary and deeply philosophical film from an auteur director. It does not follow a traditional linear narrative approach to storytelling. <laughs> so far, they've just described Terrence Malick, right? Uh, <laughs> we encourage patrons to read up on the film before choosing to see it. And for those electing to attend, please go in with an open mind and know that the Avon has a no-refund policy once you have purchased <laughs> a ticket to see one of our films. The Avon stands behind this ambitious work of art and other challenging films which define us as a true art house cinema and we hope you will expand your horizons with us. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting because, like, it's Tree of Life played everywhere, right? I think it, it played in sort of the art house theaters maybe first. It had a pretty wide release. Um, mm -hmm. But it's interesting that, like, an art house theater had to be like, this is not just a Brad Pitt movie. Like, don't come to our art house theater to go see a Brad Pitt movie. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, they use a lot of the same words that we have used to describe Malik uh, <laughs> in, 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 in this disclaimer. But I, uh, I remember finding that hilariously funny when I, when I heard about it on the NPR piece. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you can see how people might not have known what to expect on, on the one hand, but you know, if you're, yeah, going to an art house movie theater might tip you <laughs> off a little bit, but um, <laughs> it's not the multiplex, but you know, again, I'm, you know, people, you know, I can't blame people for having negative reactions to movies, but, um, you know, we like we all experience things like we were saying before in different ways. But, yeah, this, you know, obviously Malik's not to everyone's taste. No, no. Uh, I personally love the movie. I thought it was a revelation and I've seen it many times since. Yeah, and, no, I, I for um, sure. I, I I think it's one of his best movies. I, I, I definitely go back and forth between. I mean, the Thin Red Line definitely has a, um, a special place in my heart my like you know in terms of i was let's see 19 when that came out and um you know and it was one of the it, it was also on the verge of like 1999 was was one of the greatest movie years ever I, the, the when you look back at the movies that were came out that year um it was so revolutionary there was just so much crazy good movies going on that year and and 98 was kind of a you know a lead up to it i remember that the Thin Red Line was the first movie that I saw that I really felt kind of challenged by as a late teenager. And so that it definitely has a, a, a real you know, special place. But The New World is definitely the one that speaks to me on a personal kind of gut level the most, but mm -hmm. on a sort of intellectual, spiritual level, um, The Tree of Life 
is that movie. New World is the one I would more most readily go back and watch, but but Tree of Life is the one that maybe has the most emotional impact. Yeah, I think so too. And you know, a lot of that for me when I watched The Tree of Life, which I saw a couple months ago, you know, just the the performance between the actors and depicting these tensions between you know, father and son and wife and husband, you know, the disappointments people feel in their lives. A lot of that's very, you know, you wonder how much of that might be personal to the filmmaker, but it's conveyed beautifully by the actors, which ultimately is what matters. Um, you know, I, I'm still a little baffled about the Sean Penn stuff towards the end, but I, I, I think I kind of get it. I can't admit to like, don't ask me too much about that if we do this again, but you know. Um, yeah. So I look, I, I think the I think I kind of get it element of Malik is part of the point. I think that's also part of the point of phenomenology. At its core, there's something to not get about Malik. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though? That it, yeah. it's, there isn't a right answer. Uh, yeah. it, it, it does really depend on what you're bringing into what you're what you're seeing. And I think that's part of his genius is that he is really able to create films that are at once incredibly intellectual and philosophical but also incredibly personal but also Mm -hmm. universal in a way that anybody whatever anybody takes away from it is the right thing to take away from it right like that that's that's almost the that's almost the formula of of what he does which is very philosophy professor of him yeah yeah it's a it's a good point i mean you can just kind of let parts of his movie just happen to you you know, and you don't necessarily you don't necessarily have to think every second and try to figure things out. Although his movies may prompt you to do that at times, you know, you just kind of let it happen. You know, um, his scenes of nature, wind rustling over grass or through the trees or a stream going through, you know, parts of the um, landscape. You know, to me, those are just like little moments of reflection in his movie, and you just kind of like let them happen and you know, just tune out for a little bit even. So, and again, like, I don't, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a movie expert, but I don't, you know, who else does that? Yeah. And when I think of the other kind of philosophy directors, um, like Christopher Nolan <laughs> is one of those directors who like, Oh, this thing that I'm making has a, has a meaning. And if you don't get it, you're an idiot. And and there's, and there's, and there's something that um, I don't know. I, I've, 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 never watched a Christopher Nolan movie that I wasn't entertained by. Um, I think the prestige is probably his best movie. And I think it's probably its least appreciated yeah, movie yeah. as well. Cause that's the movie that really kind of walks that line the best. But then I think of a movie like inception and you get all these like fanboys being like, Oh my God, it's the most interesting movie ever made. And if you don't get it, you're an idiot. And that's like, <laughs> yeah, is it though? Like, you know, <laughs> is it really as smart as you think it is because um, it's a kind of an interesting conceit that doesn't actually have much to it and has a lot of window dressing to make it seem smarter than it really is. Mm-hmm. I understand why people feel talked down to by a lot of these auteur directors, right? I understand why people feel like they're inaccessible because these people think they're smarter than the audience. Mm-hmm. I happen to like a lot of those movies because I'm a nerd, but like, <laughs> <laughs> I get why people don't, uh, and, and I get when people don't like a really sort of obtuse and ambiguous movie. When I do, and I don't try and like force that on them, but I think with Malick, it's it's if you do give it a chance, as the the Avon Theater in Stanford, Connecticut asked you to <laughs> if you do kind of give it a chance and just kind of let it happen to you and realize that there isn't a right interpretation of it and and that 
the fact that there's no right interpretation of it rewards multiple viewings and that, you know, you can watch it nine times and see something different every time. And like, that is what Malik believes in as a philosophy. You know, I think there's something really beautiful and wonderful and almost impossible <laughs> about that, that just nobody else has that ability. Yeah. And yeah, I totally agree. And I, you know, I've gotten that sense before from, you know, Nolan's films, but also other films. I mean, it's, you know, the expectation that you're going to be entertained or understand every director's kind of work, you know, and, you know, most people don't care who the director is, but they have the experience of a movie theater of being like, I don't get what they're trying to do, or I can't figure out this puzzle and inception, which I certainly couldn't. I mean, <laughs> don't, you know, yeah. if my life depended on it. I couldn't explain that movie, um, but that's fine. Like I don't get bent out of shape about it and nor do you, but like, <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 tougher, even you know, as the years go on. Um, maybe for filmmakers like that to do their work, because so much of what is made is geared towards let's make the audience happy, and that's always been true in theater and movies. Um, but now, you know, people get really upset if something happens in a movie and a, a portion of the fan base doesn't like it. Um, obviously, so. Um, I don't know. I like I like being subject to the whims of a director, whomever that person might be, whether it's, you know, I want to see Little Women and Greta Gerwig's work more and I want to see newer directors. And, and I care about like what an artist says, like I'm the viewer, like this is the bargain we've made. Like, you know, you've made the movie and I chose to see it, um, you know, and that's those are the terms of engagement. Um, I want to see what you have to say. Um I don't get a vote in it. I don't know. I guess I'm old fashioned. I, I don't know. 100% with you. I, you know, I, I think we see this most with Star Wars nerds who are like, yeah, exactly. Give me this one particular yeah. cut that I, you know, like, just watch it. Whatever. It's Star Wars, man. Get over it. Right. Like, anyway, um, yeah. we both love Star Wars. We're, we're both complete. Star I love Star Wars. Wars. Yeah, of course, yeah. I adore it. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Um, let's get back to Let's, let's, uh, okay, one more thing before we go any further. I, I, I do want to address the um, is Terrence Malick a Nazi uh, element of it. So Terrence Malick uh, is a, a stan of, of this one particular Nazi philosopher, um, Heidegger, whose, whose philosophy, by the way, is not like Nazi philosophy. Um, he mm -hmm. just was a member of the party, as pretty much everybody who wasn't Jewish um, in his time and place was, you know, to, to sort of questionable amount of loyalty to the party whatever heidegger's philosophy has nothing to do with nazism um you might even say that, like nietzsche who was you know definitely nothing to do with nazism but more influential is more associated with nazism than someone like heidegger is right and and you know, whether or not you can separate the work from the author um you know that's a whole different conversation <laughs> we've actually we've talked about this before that uh malik also likes wagner uh and and that's also problematic um in the association with nazi yeah you know the examples seem to pile up so i can see how it would be concerning the people <laughs> but, so so okay yeah. but then you get to his most recent movie a hidden life as you've already alluded yeah. to um and a hidden life is a movie about a conscientious objector to the nazis um so so that's that's, I think, <laughs> Malik making his <laughs> definitive, like, where I stand with Nazis stamp, right? Um, yeah, yeah, explicitly clear. Right. <laughs> Here's this glowing <laughs> movie about this guy who, who stood up to the Nazis. But I actually, I think there's something even more interesting there, which is that one of the things I love about Malik, and, and this 
will get us, I think, into the into the new world, is his his lack of judgment, and I don't think in an irresponsible way. I don't think he's like, well, Hitler was just experiencing life. It's, you know, I don't think I don't think <laughs> I don't think that. Uh, no, no, no. But that he's not interested in making assessments on history so much as trying to understand not the 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 big driving forces of historical events but the the personal driving forces that like history is something that happens to people and and by people that that human beings with internal monologues and individual experiences of reality um, are the people that make history happen and we often i mean you're a historian so you can i'd love to hear what you have to say about this but do you mind if i call you a historian you have a phd in history so i'm going to call you that (laughs) so so i think you officially get the qual the 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 title (laughs) i'd love to hear what you have to say about this uh i've always been really allergic to the uh the great man of history sort of motif Mm -hmm. and and what i love about malik is that when he explores history he explores it from that vantage point of um people did this these were these were human beings who had who were not fundamentally unlike anybody else yeah exactly you know he he doesn't make you know the thin red line about macarthur you know for instance um you know it's about this you know platoon or battalion of everyday soldiers and you know likewise even you know if you know a little bit about virginian history it's you might know john smith and you certainly know pocahontas from having been in school and stuff but um yeah, they're just they're kind of small figures on the stage, but that stage becomes bigger because of their interaction with it. And you might say that of of other films too. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the great man of history approach is definitely not what Malik's interested in. Um, but somehow life becomes bigger, even when they're in the smaller context of these people that he's dealing with. Um, that for me makes it more powerful as a viewer. You know, um, it's a credit to him, and again you know, showing us how people view and see the world and also how life changes when they interact with each other is, you know, takes on profound meaning for him. Yeah. So, so the film itself, um, again, is sort of a middle point between Malik's return and then his, his explosion of work, uh, in the, in the late, part of the first decade of the 2000s. I don't even know how to refer to that. The 2010, <laughs> uh, whatever. The turn of the 2010s, I guess. 2010s, uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so 05, this is his only movie um, between the end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2010s. And it's a movie that is, uh, at the center of it, is the well-known, well-worn, Disney-adaptationed uh, story of Pocahontas and John Smith. Or kind of, right? So John Smith is a character in it. Pocahontas is a character in it. They do interact. There is something that happens between the two. She never sings a song about painting with wind or whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's, she is played by a new, uh, an actress who had not done anything before that, who was 14 years old when she, when she played that role. Um, Pocahontas, at the time of her uh, encounter with Smith would have been, it depends on how you read history, but 12-ish. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, can you give us a little bit about, historically, what does the film cover and your understanding or your sort of analysis of its historical value or accuracy? Um, yeah, you know, it's the those first ships that were sent out um, as part of, you know, England's attempt to, 
develop permanent colonies, which they had tried twice before and failed twice before. Um, so, you know, 1607, um, when those ships set out. And, you know, I think the history is pretty good. You know, there definitely was encounters between the characters you see in the film, between Smith and Pocahontas. Um, what really happens, like, historically is there's one scene in the movie where, you know, Smith gives himself up almost as a prisoner to the chief of the Powhatan people and lives with them for a time. And in one scene, he's brought before the chief and it seems like some of the other members of the tribe are going to kill him. And what happens in the film is that Pocahontas prevents this from happening. Um, in other words, Smith was about to die. He's saved by Pocahontas. Um, historically, what Smith had done was write about that incident. And he wrote, uh, the first time he wrote about it was soon after it actually happened. But he says he was brought before the king the first time he writes about it, but he says nothing about Pocahontas or anyone saving his life. It's 15 or 16 years later where he actually writes that story that I was saved by the princess or the, the chief's daughter who saved my life. And sort of it's from there, that second later account that we get the Smith, the supposed Smith and Pocahontas relationship. But overall, the, the history is really good in the film, um, you know, from what I can tell. Mm -hmm. Well, Smith himself was something of a notorious, like, self-aggrandizing fabulous. Yeah. Right? I, and, I, I mean, I, not uncommon of people of his ilk. Uh, uh, no, definitely not. Right? Definitely that, not. that you're you're a guy who's trying to, you know, you're risking your life every time you get on a boat and, and you're going somewhere where, you know, God knows what's going to happen to you when you get there. And, um, you know, he's certainly made a lot of enemies uh, in a lot of different places and um, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think... Uh, from what I understand, the general consensus among historians is that Smith either made this story up because it sounded good for him, mm -hmm. or I've also heard the theory that uh, it did in fact happen, but it was something that the 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 Powhatan uh, sort of staged uh, as a way of sort of creating this peace offering, right, by like having Pocahontas they were never going to kill him in the first place. And, and Pocahontas yeah. threw herself on in front of him to sort of force a kind of a, a peace treaty with, with, with the English. I don't know how, how do you, how do you read that? I mean, I think it's, it's, I think it's possible. There may have been symbolic meaning in that event when he's brought it before chief Powhatan. Um, basically what, you know, the Powhatan people believed was that they would kind of either, send off these new groups of arrivals who would move along and get out of the Powhatan's people, you know, get out of the way of the Powhatan people, or that, you know, basically the Powhatan would control the English uh, settlers um, because Powhatan himself, you know, ruled over a number of other smaller groups or tribes as we would understand them. So they kind of assumed the English would just become under you know, the Powhatan Dominion, of course, the English think the exact opposite and hence a lot of the trouble in the movie. So that, again, that's portrayed pretty well because you see both those dynamics in the film. Yeah. And I, that to me, I think is one of the most sort of revelatory things. I mean, I don't think Malik is necessarily interested in redefining history or providing enormous historical insights. But I, I do yeah. think that in, in, in this case, he does by again taking that sort of neutral observer 
stance that, that, that I, I think is one of his hallmarks, that he is able to point out that the desire for power and influence is not one-sided, right? Like you do have these invaders who, who show up on your land, but it's not that they were, you know, all of the native people were defenseless entirely or or, mm-hmm. or not interested in maybe like using this as an opportunity to expand their own power. Um, and we tend to, because we, we have a sort of, yeah, this gets into, into the nature of history itself, right? That, that what we think of as history, I think after a certain amount of time, we think of as being an objective record of the facts. Mm-hmm. But you know, as someone who studied history, like that's not <laughs> what we have. We don't have some guy. And I, I kind of feel like this is the sort of mental picture most people have is that like there's some dude with a notebook <laughs> right who's just like watching all of this stuff happen and writing it all down and then like sending it off to the history lab or something and like that's what gets printed in our textbook and that's not the case <laughs> at all right like yeah. what we know of this incident we know from smith and we know from 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 the colonists and 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 from you know royal records and that sort of thing so so we we lose that like yeah there was motivations on the other side as well and 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 they yeah. are interested in the same things that all human civilizations are interested in like conquest and power and dominion right oh yeah yeah absolutely and the powhatan people you know had become so powerful for those very reasons um you know they had conquered sometimes peacefully sometimes violently um other tribes throughout you know that part of virginia um and were quite powerful and you know lorded it over some people and you know treated others well i mean the equivalencies only go so far but yeah absolutely they have you know those Powhatan people had complex motives just as the English did and sought to get the best out of the other group. Um, it worked out the way it did, obviously, as we know, to the English advantage with, you know, horrific consequences down the line. But yeah, um, you know, they didn't know that at the time, um, obviously. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, getting back to Malik, though, yeah, he, you know, he uses the history as a starting point and is respectful of of the scholarship as well as a filmmaker can be but yeah you can't be constrained by the sources in this case because like you said the sources are incredibly incomplete um so the sources for a filmmaker's point of view at least only do so much right and and you know his desire to sort of get into people's heads i think is really helpful as a as a you know trying to if not creating a new historical record at least giving us a way of reassessing the existing historical record Mm -hmm. that that by allowing us the chance to just sort of entertain the idea of not but you know not they're 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 not being white hats and black hats as there often is in the way that history (laughs) is told um you know however it's told that that tends to be the arrangement um Mm -hmm. by by defying that and and kind of throwing that away and focusing instead on discovery and the desire for discovery and to and to seek out new places and 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 that really being the drive of the human experience right that like we love having security and we love having certainty um Mm -hmm. but we 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 thrive on breaking out of that right and kind of hoping things go well because we, 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 we have the sense that there is something more beyond, right. That we want to go to the moon, that we want to go beyond the moon, that we want to go 
right? And like, yeah. North America was the moon of the 17th century. He uses this moment in history as a way of telling something that is, again, uniquely and, and uh, by definition, a human experience. Yeah, absolutely. You know, profoundly so in this case. And, you know, the exploration that, you know, goes on, like you were saying, goes on from both sides um, that we see. And it's it's kind of a remarkable achievement that it's not, you know, single-sided. But again, I think that goes to, you know, Malik's interest in just humankind and experience um, and letting these explorations happen on screen so that we you know, we see a remarkable portrait of two people who kind of in microcosm are capturing one of the great transformations of the past 400 years. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, the history, you know, again, you don't, you have to be respectful of it because these were actual people who lived and breathed. Um, but, you know, the filmmaker's, you know, perspective and the filmmaker's obligation you know, is different than a historian. Like you said, this, you know, he's not trying to settle or stimulate a, a historiographical debate on the one hand. Um, on the other hand, you know, you have to you be attentive to, you know, the actors and peoples involved. And I think he does that. Yeah. And I also, what I think is, is really kind of powerful about this movie and what sets it apart is that the the focus of it really is not the traditional adventurer, explorer, discoverer as being the English arriving in Jamestown, but rather Pocahontas exploring and discovering something new with her encounter with Smith, mm -hmm. which again, you know, okay, so we can, we can talk about the, the ickiness of, of the sort of <laughs> traditional Smith narrative um, with that, you know, Smith, I think wrote about how this girl was enchanted by him and blah, blah, blah. And, and maybe, um, and we, we again, <laughs> like, we don't know, I don't think we can say for sure how old Pocahontas actually was. We just don't know like how the Powhatan kept time or if like there was tra like, there's no way of knowing that. Right. It's, we can't say for sure. Like the year she was born. I, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know if you can refute that, but I, as far as I'm, I know we don't have any concrete evidence of exactly how old Pocahontas was. Right. Yeah. As far as I know. Yeah. We only have kind of Smith's account of it. And he was, it seems like he was kind of guessing. So, you know, you have, Colin Farrell playing Smith and he's in his thirties at the time. And you have Corianka Kilcher uh, playing Pocahontas and she's 14. And, and, and the sort of the, the electricity between them, the, the love between them is not explored physically really in the movie. Like they never kiss in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, they, they are uh, it's, it's, it's all about sort of, this new thing, this like alien, right? It's it, it reminds me of like <laughs> Elliot E.T. in a certain way, right? That's like it's not it's not romantic, but it is profound in its its connection, right? And mm -hmm. and the way that that's done, I think, is is remarkable. And then she she marries John Rolfe, played by Christian Bale, and and that plays out. And all the time, Malik is giving her agency in a way that. I don't think history does. And I don't think any other account of this, this story ever has either. Yeah. I think that's a really important part of the movie because, you know, you would think with a, you know, a star on the rise, like Colin Farrell was during that time, um, you know, it would be explicitly about him as the protagonist and like his journey and what that meant. And that was the dramatic action. But as the movie unfolds, it becomes really her movie. Um, she is the protagonist. She is the one 
to whom a lot happens, but to whom makes decisions on her own and demands for herself. And you see that especially through the relationship with Rolf, which was recorded. Um, obviously, you know, Rolf and her were married. They did have a child together. They did go back to England together. Um, you know, and th there's like a kind of turn or transition in the film where you see that happen. And when she takes over, it's really kind of extraordinary because you're like, yeah, this whole experience, you know, seen through her point of view is kind of what is really most affecting about the film, I think, um, because it's her journey. It's her transformation. Um, that is the crucial one. Yeah. I think. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of living descendants of the relationship between Pocahontas and John Rolfe. Um, to the present day. Is that right? Oh, oh I didn't yeah. know that. I, think, I, I think, didn't know that. I'm pretty sure Nancy Reagan was. One is that right? Them. Oh, wow. Uh, I don't know. I have to look it up. I know there's some some pretty high profile people who are uh, well known to be to be descendants. Oh, I actually but, I didn't know that. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. So you're right. It is it is something that is we have a far more um, of a sort of solid basis for for that relationship and, and understanding it. But I, I what I what I really like is that she like the the way it talks about her exposure to Christianity and and you know again I don't I don't think Malik wants to downplay this and i'm not downplaying it either because absolutely there were lots of people who were just like forced to convert to christianity <laughs> and that's a really dark story but she seems to like the way that he plays it is not yes there was some sort of coercion i mean she's married to this guy as a christian and that's just the way things are done and it doesn't seem like she really has a choice but she also is very clearly discovering something new and he really focuses on the fact that she is discovering something new that she is learning she's 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 opening herself up to a new world right that that and, mm -hmm. and that is an exciting and motivating element for her and i think that's a really important thing to capture again if aliens invaded earth right like <laughs> we would all be terrified but also like we all really want an alien invasion somewhere deep down I, right i mean like we're all we're all sort of pining for that in some to, in, to some degree as much as you're like it's a horrifying idea like we all want to like go on a spaceship and, and see what that's like and like ex be exposed to their technology and maybe like forced to worship their god i don't know but right like, <laughs> but there is still something that really is um we wouldn't keep telling this story about alien invasions mm -hmm. if we weren't endlessly kind of both fascinated by it but also kind of driven to it and I, and, and i think that malik really wants to explore that that really narrow pathway that, that yeah. she became a christian yes kind of by coercion but also that that process was itself an element of discovery and that she when she went to england like that cost her her life but the mm -hmm. movie ends with her kind of dancing about right in a in a in a garden in england and and that's mm -hmm. The, what we're left with sort of just prior to her death because it seems for Malik and I, and, and I, you know, that his, where he finds meaning in the story is that drive. Like, like she's found not Eden, but something mm -hmm. new. <laughs> and like, it's the looking for something new that matters, not the finding somewhere perfect. Yeah, exactly. You know, finding that place of belonging that maybe isn't the native place where you grew up. I mean, it's a pretty common experience in, human history, right? I mean, people spreading out from the first human settlements in Africa to other parts of the world and all the other, you know, 
manifestations of that across human history. I mean, and I think even if that scale isn't taken in the movie, you know, her experience of wanting to see where Rolf was from and wanting to develop relations in Virginia positively with the English settlers, you know, she goes to them during that winter when things are really bad and basically saves them, you know, and the, the haggard, shambolic men are like princess, princess, princess. Um, so there's an impulse like to make connections, to explore, yeah, that are not just like the provenance of like Western white people, right? Um, so like, it's we're not the only ones who got to do that. Um, and I, I think there's some recognition of that in this work to a to small degree. But yeah, um, you know, the scenes with Rolf and with Smith towards the end of moving of the end of the movie are really compelling because of, um, you know, we're seeing the choices that Pocahontas made up to that point, which, you know, are her own. Well, let's talk about the ending. It's a real gut punch. The encounter with Smith at the end, is it true that Rolf set that up or, or that she did in fact encounter him in England? Or is that, is that sort of apocryphal? That I don't know. I, I thought that was fictional, um, kind of as a way for the filmmaker to wrap up you know, this like almost divided love triangle. So I'm not sure about that. Um, as, as, if I if I remember right, like, and, and, you know, I haven't really dug much into the story historically in quite some time, but I, I, I do remember that she does find out that he wasn't dead, that, that she's told that he, she was told that he died, but she found out that he wasn't. And I, I think that's also documented. I don't know if the, um, the re-encounter is historical or not, as I said, but if not, then what do you make of why Malik would want to include it? Um, you know, I think to about that those final like 20 minutes or so of the movie, um, you know, as the ones that really kind of, you know, just made me realize what a special film it is. And when Spiff and Pocahontas meet again at this, you know, English country estate, you know, she asks him, you know, John, did you find your Indies, as in your West Indies, you know, whatever you were searching for? And he says, you know, I think you know, they may have passed me by. And I think he's expressing the regret that he had left her to go back to England and missed on his chance, um, which, you know, Rolf kind of is his replacement in a sense. Um, and Rolf in setting up that meeting towards the end of the film, you know, I think he does so because he realizes that his wife is still conflicted about her feelings for Smith when she learns he's still alive. Um, you know, and she says to him in a way of saying thanks, I think, um, you are the man I thought you were. She says that to Rolf for kind of giving her the chance to, I don't know, find closure, I suppose. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like a wrap up almost of this exploration and questing um, and then finding peace with Rolf and having a child with him, which, you know, tragically is cut off short because of her illness and eventual death. So. Yeah, and again, I think that's probably whether or not it happened is is inconsequential to Malik because what matters to him again is the um, the human experience of history and not necessarily the big, broad right. Like that, that he needs these characters to be able to have a. You know, it's funny. So uh, let me back up for a second. For a guy who uses voiceover as a way of doing this most of the time like sometimes you actually need to have the characters have that interaction whether or not they did right because that's how he explores 
what's going on <laughs> internally by making something external happen. And, and, and I think that's really interesting. I think it likes it, it sort of adds to his credibility as a guy who uses voiceovers that he's like, you know what, I'm, even if this didn't happen, I need it to be there because I need to, um, I need to really pay respect to this person's experience. And I can't do that unless I show them having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. Yeah, completely. So it's like a, these like consciousness, He's giving voice to consciousness in a way um, and people's intimate thoughts um, and how they crisscross and connect and don't connect. Um, and finally, at the end of this film, there is a real connection made, surprisingly, between Rolf and Pocahontas, um, which is maybe not what you would expect at the start of the film. But, um, you know, it, it, it adds an element of poignancy and tragedy and, and closure to the film that otherwise might have searched for a satisfactory kind of conclusion. But it was already, you know, that was part of the, what actually happened. So, um, but it, it ends with that kind of like real graceful note um, that is bittersweet, you know, to, to put it simply, I guess. So we'll, we'd be remiss if I didn't talk about a couple things in, in wrapping up here. So first of all, I know you've read the piece by John Patterson in the Guardian <laughs> at the end of 2009. Uh, so John Patterson is a film critic and he, <laughs> wrote a piece in the guardian which has been pretty well read uh called the new world a misunderstood masterpiece where he basically in what seems like a fever dream drunk <laughs> like it's the way that he talks about this movie is as though it is the most consequential event uh of a human being's life that you find <laughs> the words for and actually like yeah. every word of it rings true and and I, I you know when i read this i was like uh-huh uh-huh yeah definitely yeah i feel this way too <laughs> it's 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 a it is a must read um and a, and a great argument for why this movie which he basically says is the movie of the aughts uh the the the, the 2000s through 2000 31st 2009 z's this is this is the defining movie of that time i think like so many of malik's movies it it wasn't appreciated the way that it is in retrospect that a lot of his movies don't get understood or are not digested properly upon first viewing and a lot of people need a couple of years to sort of be like oh wait that movie was amazing <laughs> <laughs> where which is funny because i think the, the, the tree of life is again the exception to that rule where like people just loved it or hated it and really very little of that opinion seems to have changed over time but but every other movie that malik makes there's always some kind of a reassessment mm-hmm. one way or or, or another <laughs> my, so my i gotta read my favorite line from this so he says suffice to say the new world is not as you may have read a gooey specimen of incontinent pictorialism nor a quote <laughs> tony scott movie on quaaludes <laughs> So this itself awesome. is just a fantastic read, and um, I, I certainly will will link to it um, from from the Facebook page. The one thing, other thing that we have to talk about with Terrence Malick, because you can't have a conversation about Terrence Malick without talking about bird sounds. <laughs> so let's just talk about bird sounds real quick. So uh, the bird sounds in uh, A New World are probably the best of all the bird sounds in <laughs> all of Terrence Malick's movies, and also maybe play the most significant role because this is the only movie that he sets in sort of the distant past where you would have more prominent bird sounds than you would in the post-industrialized world where most of his movies take place so you are you're a you're a bird enthusiast yourself and and i know that you um have taken up birding 
uh, mm-hmm. and that uh, you you have you have said is an interesting um, subculture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is 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 your love for birds part of uh, your love for Terrence Malick, or is that just something that is purely coincidental? Yeah, it's it's mostly coincidental, but it's kind of impossible to miss. I think, especially in this movie, um, you know just as one of the oral sounds and his mastery of using music and um, ambient noise in the naturalistic way, like he shoots the films themselves. So I think the sounds, um, you know, just of nature, to put it generally, are an important part of the film Um, instead of, you know, having, well, there's a lot of music in his movies. I'm not going to say that, you know, there's tons of (laughs) the Vorspiel from, you know, Das Rheingold, you know, (laughs) dominates through this film and it's incredibly gorgeous but i just love the way i mean the bird sounds for me why it made such an impression was just the way the movie ends right like the stuff in england ends and then it's just a scene back in virginia and all you hear really are just the birds the bird sounds and the images from where you had been back in eden um to end the movie is just like so subtle but powerful to me um i don't know to me, it, it doesn't necessarily have a meaning, but it just goes back to the feeling and experience of being in this world he creates. Um, that's just perfect for me. I mean, my interest in in birding is just to like, a, you know, appreciate that actually in Manhattan, we have tons of bird species and it's a fun thing to do on Saturday and Sunday mornings once we get back to normal. Um, so yeah, it was kind of just like a coincidental kind of thing. Um, but yeah, just, you know, just like I was alluding to before, the sounds the simple sounds of a place. Um, Life goes on, irrespective of what's happening between the English and the the Powhatan people. Um, And that seems like the right place for the film to end. It's like a perfect little beat. And it's a great place for us to end. So uh, we'll we'll, we'll end it there. Matt, thanks for for joining us and having this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much, John, for having me. This This was a lot of fun. I like this. 